Iran's activities have not only dominated U.S. foreign policy, but they have transformed the DNA of the of the region since 1980. It's the week of November 11th, 2019, and welcome to the latest episode of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. This week, we are excited to change things up a bit. We're giving our regular Motley crew the week off, and today I'll be talking to Norman Rule, who served for 34 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, managing programs relating to Iran and the Middle East. Norm also served as the National Intelligence Manager for Iran at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence from November 2008 until September 2017. And I'm Lester Munson, Senior Fellow at NSI and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. All right, let's get started. We're going to talk about Iran today. Last week marked the 40th anniversary of the taking of 50 American hostages by the new revolutionary government in Tehran, in Iran. Um, it was uh, a tremendous event at the time here in the United States. Americans were incredibly focused on things that were going on in the, in the country of Iran. Their fellow countrymen, their diplomats were being held captive by this new government. Uh, and since then, we've faced uh, 40 years of difficult foreign policy crises for uh, almost every president since then. Uh, obviously, President Carter was frustrated by dealing with the hostage situation. Uh, even President Reagan uh, who arguably was helped by President Carter's ineptness on the question, struggled with the Iran question. He had the Iran-Contra scandal that he struggled with uh, in, a, in the middle of his second term. President Obama cut a nuclear deal with Iran that uh, was widely praised by some, widely criticized by others. Uh, and right now, President Trump, uh, who is trying to put maximum pressure on Iran, uh, has also kind of thrown out the the possibility that there could be new negotiations on a new nuclear deal with Iran. So Iran is a focus of U.S. foreign policy over the last 40 years. It's been a, a problem for a long time. Uh, nuclear weapons issues with Iran, support for terrorism, human rights abuses by uh, the Tehran government. It's a focus of a lot of conversations, a lot of news right now. The purpose of this podcast is kind of dig into Iran itself and see what we can learn about this country that has so flummoxed American policymakers for so long. We have a huge opportunity here today with Norm as our guest. Uh, Norm, can you talk a little bit about big picture how Iran has dominated U.S. foreign policy dilemmas over the last couple generations? Sure, and thank you for having me. This is a great podcast. I'm an avid listener and um, uh, look forward to our today's discussion. Uh, let me begin by saying something that might be counterintuitive, and that is that U.S. foreign policy with Iran has been remarkably constant since 1979. Every president has, in essence, tried to do three things. Avoid a war in the Middle East, empower local allies or partners with sufficient defensive capacity that they can defend themselves without igniting a regional conflict, and working with generally unenthusiastic allies in Europe or the United Nations to form some kind of a coalition to compel Iran to, frankly, behave like a rational nation. Uh, Iran's activities have not only dominated U.S. foreign policy, but they have transformed the DNA of the, of the region since 19, 1980. And I think the biggest problem is that each president, um, and I've met with five on this issue, has um, um, sort of varied between is there a way that we can reach out and deal with them? Is there a way that we can pressure them? One myth I'd like to dispel is that we don't talk to Iran. 
Iran is actually a remarkably easy country with whom uh, to communicate. Uh, every president has faced multiple official and unofficial attempts by the Iranian government, their friends, intermediaries, real or imagined, to communicate with the United States government. But I always say that back channels are like sand dunes in the, in the Middle East. They're everywhere, but they rarely have much use to them. So for the problem that U.S. presidents face is that how do you actually engage a government that may not be interested in engaging with us? So, Norm, um, Iran is a, has a civilization that's gone back at least two and a half millennia. You go back to the Persian Empire, uh, leaders like Cyrus, Xerxes, Zoroaster, the guy who founded the first monothe- monotheistic religion as far as we know in human history. There's a, there's a long... Uh, history to the Iranian people and their form of government uh, as as an organized principle. What do you, we see Iran as this Islamic fundamentalist country? Is that really what the Iranian people are? The Persian people? What is it? Or is this this an anomaly in their history? Well, this is certainly an anomaly in their history, but there are multiple threads of their history which have led up to this. I mean, we often look at Iran's imperial background in discussing the country, but I think it's more important to talk about the last few hundred years where the Iranians, frankly, had a relatively weak country that was often dominated by uh, uh, external powers. As recently as the uh, late 1950s or 1940s and 1950s, you had the Soviet Union attempt to carve off the northern end of the country into a separate country. You've had the Qajar dynasty, which was relatively weak in the 19th century, with Europeans such as the British, the French, the Germans even, as well as the Russians attempting to dominate the country. Their leaders haven't been particularly good leaders during this period either. So management was not a was not a 14. As a result, the country was very weak and frankly, their egos were bruised. What you see now is uh, an Islamic reg- regime which is drawing upon that, 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 that discontent and trying to turn it into a different type of nationalism. It's failed. Uh, the country is not very happy with what the, with the um, Islamic government brings. And I think if I can point to one aspect of the nuclear deal that is often overlooked, and that is when sanctions were lifted, it gave the Iranian people several years to see it wasn't sanctions responsible for their problems. And in the unrest that you've seen over the last couple of years, other than the rent of mobs put forward by the government, you rarely have many um, a death to America or America's responsible condemnations by the crowds. The Iranian government is seen as the problem by its own people. So is there is there a natural, aside from our concerns about the form of government uh, that Iran has right now, is there a natural place in the order of their region in the Middle East uh, where Iran plays a leading role. It's a, it's a fairly large country population-wise. Uh, it's got a terrifically educated population, a lot of accomplishments. Is there, is there a natural place in the order of things for Iran that's, that may be motivating uh, the ambitions of its people? Well, certainly Iran is a large country with a tremendously important location in, a, in, the, in the Persian Gulf. And Iran does have natural and legitimate interest in the region. It has an interest in issues such as refugees, uh, seismic problems. They have a terrific problem with earthquakes, environmental uh, problems. They have problems with uh, uh, counter-narcotics or narcotics problems. And counter-narcotics cooperation would be great. So Iran has many legitimate interests. The problem 
problem is that these interests are not being put forward by, um, say, the foreign ministry, but its interests are being represented by the Quds Force, which is a strange creature. Uh, the Quds Force as an entity has never existed in any country probably in the last four or five hundred years, with the exception of maybe a couple of years under the early Soviet Union. So you have this weird creature which dominates Iran's external uh, foreign policy, um, which makes it an anomaly in not only Iranian history, regional history, but in world history. So let's talk about Iran's current form of government. They've got, uh, in addition to the Quds Force, of course, uh, there's a supreme leader, the Ayatollah, uh, there's a council of guardians. These are folks who are basically self-appointed to uh, either make decisions to run the country or veto decisions made by uh, the parliament that Iran has, the Majlis. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Okay. Uh, so w- what do you? how do we describe that government? In addition to the Quds Force, you've got this kind of – it's not necessarily totalitarian because there's this veneer of democracy and elections that happens in Iran. But there's – at its core, there's a – there's an inability of the Iranian people to change their government if they want to. If they really want to change the actual decision makers, they can't do it. So how do we how do we characterize that in the context of Iranian history and the Persian people? That's a great um, um, uh, question. In many ways, I've, I've said Iran's elections are often very are generally very free, but they're certainly not fair. Every candidate, every official in country of consequence must be approved by um, a, a leadership and an architecture which is fundamentally revolutionary or hardline. And the supreme leader who is the ultimate decision maker on the issues we care most about in the United States, if you care about terrorism, if you care about missiles, if you care about regional threats, if you care about Iran's nuclear program, this is not Iran's president and certainly not its foreign minister. But the supreme leader and the architecture which empowers him through the revolutionary guards uh, primarily basically makes these decisions in a way the Iranian people don't have a big voice. Is it so given the United States role in the Middle East where – uh, in addition to us having interests, economic interests that we're eager to protect in energy and other areas, we also have values that we promote, whether we know it or not, of of democracy and economic freedom. We support certain democracies in the Middle East. We find ourselves opposing authoritarian governments. Is it is it inevitable that the U.S. and Iran are going to be in tension despite its current form of government? In other words, just given the size of Iran in the region and its – uh, kind of natural place in things. Is there is there inevitably going to be conflict between the U.S. and Iran, or is this because of the current government that Iran has? Well, it's certainly not because of the United States and Iran as two countries. In fact, in for American American history in the last century has been generally uh, quite uh, um, uh, friendly towards Iran. We have sent uh, officials such as uh, Morgan Schuster, who was sent by President Roosevelt to be the de facto treasurer of Iran uh, during a time when the Iranian government was under significant uh, significant influence of the, by the uh, Russians and the uh, British. In fact, he came back so friendly to um, Iran that he published a, a book called The Strangling of, of, of a Nation. Uh, Howard Baskerville, another famous uh, Presbyterian um, missionary who fought with the Iranians in their constitutional revolution of 1910. And I believe there was a bus to him in, a, in the museum in Tabriz. So until about 1953... You have a, a relationship which was generally quite quite warm and uh, uh, quite positive. It was the Mossadegh uh, um, overthrow that certainly soured this. At the same time, uh, going to 1979, it would be wrong to say that just Mossadegh's overthrow uh, uh, tones our relationship. If you are a revolutionary government, you need a counter-revolutionary foe. 
I advise your listeners to take a look at Iran's long and indeed long-winded, perhaps, constitution, which is more of a political statement than anything else. It talks an awful lot about oppression, oppressed um, uh, um, um, parties in other countries. And I don't think it's possible for the United States and Iran to genuinely have a, a productive relationship simply because doing so undercuts the very purpose for the existence of the Islamic Republic. And so the supreme leader... And the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, will inherently propose any warming of ties with the United States or the West in general. And, and I must say this is because they view our culture as something which is against their, um, their values. They view our culture uh, regarding um, um, uh, women, regarding uh, um, uh, uh, sexuality, regarding um, uh, freedom of, 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 of expression as something which is anathema to the revolution. And I, I, they would see this exposure to the United States as a, a soft war against their, their Islamic values, which are not in um, um, uh, popularity in, in Iran today. Let's talk about Mos- the <clears throat> Mossadegh overthrow that you that you referenced. It was, I believe, 1953, mm-hmm. the early years of the Cold War between the United States and the West against the Soviet Union, uh, and a lot of competition for power in places like the Middle East. And Iran was certainly a place where uh, great powers were uh, seeking influence and uh, and trying to defend their interests. How how do we uh, and the the Mossadegh overthrow is often used by Iranians to explain why uh, the current government has issues with the United States, why they describe our form of government as the great Satan and why relations are so hostile. What is? Can you contextualize and realize I'm asking kind of a historical question here. Can you contextualize the Mossadegh, the overthrow of Mossadegh in Iran and, and what that meant? So – Again, you've got to go back to the time period. 1949, the Soviet Union conducted an aggressive program to carve away Azerbaijan from Iran itself. And it was one of the early victories of the United States in the Cold War of maintaining Iran's um, territorial integrity. At the same time, uh, there was growing interest in, in, assur- in ensuring the supply of oil for not just international commerce, but uh, military, a variety of different reasons. This was more important to the British than to the United States. Uh, the United States, based on public information, and you can read about the um, um, uh, operation conducted by the U.S. government uh, in, um, uh, on the Internet, and Operation Ajax, as it is known, uh, you will see that the United States certainly um, facilitated the, the overthrow of Mossadegh. But it must be said that the overthrow was accomplished by the Iranian people. It wasn't Kermit Roosevelt and five Americans who overthrew Mossadegh. It involved Iranian military personnel and clerics who frankly wanted him gone. Um, indeed, the uh, history of the coup is uh, interesting in that there are really two or three phases to the event. And the first event was not particularly successful, but it was success. It became successful when, a, when a, a, a number of Iranians sort of glommed on to the effort and removed Mossadegh. So now he is seen as a democratic official. It's entirely uh, an evil plot by the United States. But the circumstances of the time were very complicated. And the and the the role of the Iranian people themselves is is often overlooked, which I think is demeaning because it makes it seem as if, again, five Westerners from the United Kingdom and the, and the United States can somehow replace any leader um, in, in the world. 
The other, uh, the other issue that uh, comes up when you start digging into U.S.-Iran relations, of course, is, is the Shah and the treatment of the Shah by the United States. <clears throat> U.S. support for the Shah, who was seen as – who became very unpopular in Iran at a certain point, and U.S. support for, for his administration. Uh, when the Shah got sick, he came to the U.S. for treatment. Uh, and that was the, the immediate predicate for a real change in government in Iran with the eventual assumption of power by uh, the Islamic – the folks behind the Islamic Republic now. But there was – can you talk a little bit about what was going on in Iran in the late 70s uh, in addition to what, what we could call fundamentalist forces that eventually prevailed? There were other groups in Iran that were interested in opposing the Shah and there was, it was a real kind of a broad-based – popular opposition to him. And how did that evolve in those couple of years where we saw real changes going on in Iran? Sure. In the 1960s and 70s, you had a country which was uh, suddenly seeing an influx of great wealth, income disparity, cultural uh, 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 clashes between a conservative countryside, a very westernized uh, urban environment. You have communism, the Iranian Tuda party, which was uh, destroyed by the Islamic Revolution uh, along with the Shah's regime. Uh, you have leftists, uh, the individuals who later became the Mujahideen Halk, uh, led vast demonstrations in the early um, uh, days of the Iranian Revolution in, in country. You have basically a country in, in, in growing turmoil, and the Shah is seen as someone who vacillated between crackdowns, accommodation, uh, between not understanding the nature of the threat, between uh, um, uh, overestimating the capacity of his security forces. Uh, and the United States at the time, I think we understood the Shah well, we understood our partners well, but we didn't understand the country well enough. And that's not a, that's not a, that's not a, a criticism of the diplomats at the time or others. It's just that it's a big and vast country. Let's talk uh, a little bit about what's going on in the Middle East right now. There's a lot of a lot of changes in the region. Uh, obviously, we're seeing um, big things going on in Saudi Arabia over the last few years uh, with MBS uh, leading crackdowns in certain areas, reforms in others. We're seeing a rapprochement of sorts between Israel and Arab countries, whether or not they want to admit it in public or not. Uh, there are street protests in various countries in the region, particularly in Lebanon and Iraq right now. A lot of them focused on Iran's role in those countries and the people not being very happy about that. Uh, the rise of Turkey as uh, as a more extreme government, but also a more uh, bigger power in the region, perhaps. So with all of those dynamics going on, how is that – how are those changes in the region impacting – the current government in Iran, the fundamentalist government in Iran, and what it sees as threats to its existence. So you're, you're correct. The region is going through an extraordinary uh, transformation present. Um, Henry Kissinger once stated that the uh, initial uh, unrest in Egypt was the first scene of the first act of a five-act play. I refer to what's happening now as Act Three. We went through the destruction of the region, the rise of and collapse of ISIS and survival of the monarchies, and now we're looking at a, a region which actually has, and this is a kind intuitive, a lot of positive things going for it. The rise of women, protests are now routine throughout the region. You have uh, a growing middle class, highly educated populations, the, the death of old-time nationalism, a fading generation of leaders tied to the past. Uh, Iran is just part of all of this. Um, I often um, ask people this loaded question. Again, you know I've done a lot of Iran. 
in January of 2018, uh, unrest took place in a country in, in dozens of cities put down over time by security forces. It involved a large uh, 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 portion of the population. Uh, foreign and direct investment was a problem. Unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. That country was Tunisia and Iran and Iraq and Jordan and the Sudan and, and of Syria and a variety of countries are now going through a new phase of the Middle East. Iran can't not be part of this, but it has no policy and certainly not the money to, uh, uh, to prevent this, uh, this thre- threat from growing. Is there is as as someone who f- has followed this uh, you know in great detail for years? Is there a more sensible approach that Iran could be taking to the region? It seems to be from uh, from here in Washington. It looks like it's hostility across the board to greater or lesser degrees with its neighbors. It seems to not uh, be. Uh, it's either undermining democratic forces or it's actively supporting armed opposition to legitimate governments in the region. Is there a, is there a better way for Iran to interact with the Arab world and the rest of the Middle East? Certainly the Iranian people have the right to choose their own government. They have a right to assert their own um, national interest and to have their own defensive posture. They have no right to to play with the DNA of the region as they're doing right now. And this is exacerbating conflicts which touch the lives of millions of people in the region, let alone preventing the um, restoration of stability in the Middle East. The problem becomes, what is a priority for the Iranian government? Today, President Rouhani talked about the severity of economic problems in Iran because of oil sanctions, the worst they've ever faced in, in, in since the revolution. And indeed, Iran's economy has, um, well, they, they've had a tenth of their economy disappear in the last year because of sanctions. Nonetheless, they have enough money to provide missiles to Yemen to fire against Saudi Arabia. And I tell people, when missiles are fired from Saudi Arabia, they do not turn left and right over the heads of Americans or Europeans. Those missiles are as much of a threat to the men, women, and children of the United States in that country as they are to Saudis and other nationals. So Iran's actions aren't just an action against the regional countries. They're actions against everyone who lives in the region. How does uh, so? Let's talk about the dynamics inside Iran. Um, how how do you relate the way Iran is behaving in the region, and you know also against uh, the the rhetoric against the United States and the West? How does that relate to the tensions that are inside the country and the demands of the people, either for change or reform or more prosperity or what have you? How is how is that? How are those kind of popular sentiments reflected in the way the regime behaves in, the, in its neighborhood? So there is a, 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 a joke that goes around some of the think tanks, um, and uh, the joke goes that Mohammed bin Salman may have planned 2030. The Supreme Leader has planned 1979. And in essence, you have to just see it that way. This is a man who believes, and he has placed in the architecture around him individuals who share his paradigm of the universe, that this is how the world should work. And that's just the way Iran conducts itself. And, and it may soften that conduct or sharpen that conduct based on specific periods and specific pressures. But it's not as if the supreme leader it can be um, talked into relations with Israel or the United States. This is a paradigm. So there's, so there's no flexibility at the core of this regime. There's no, there's no way the Ayatollah uh, and his Council of Guardians and um, – uh, you know, the Quds Force can be flexible enough to have a change in aspect with the rest of the world. 
not the current leadership. However, the Supreme Leader is aged. He's ill. He will likely be replaced by another hardliner, given that he has, again, set in place a, 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 a structure of selection of his successor, which is going to choose someone who shares his view of the world. But Iran is changing. When you talk of, um, of, of, of Javed Zarif, the foreign minister, he had no background in the revolution. He bravely fought the Iran-Iraq war from Denver, California, New York. Even the head of the Quds Force, who is often talked about, a relatively minor official who is a minor military official who has been given a, a, a large amount of publicity in the West, he was a water worker in 1979. And he bravely fought in the Iran-Iraq war. But his world is also different. I think we're looking at a transition to a new um, – um, Iran, where which will be more assertive, more engaging with the West, but but no less um, uh, willing to protect what it perceives as its interests. Many of which will still be revolutionary. Okay, let's talk about uh, economic sanctions. You said earlier that uh, the sanctions from the West had cost Iran one tenth of its economy. Uh, that seems significant. Uh, you look at the numbers for oil exports; they're way down in the last year and a half or so when, under the Trump administration maximum pressure campaign. Uh, oil, of course, is the primary uh, revenue winner for the government in Iran. What's the what's your assessment of how far economic sanctions can go in changing things on the ground in Iran? Can can we see, can, if they can't change the fundamental nature of the government, can they at least change the way this government behaves in the region? Well, if you're a policymaker, and this is this is somewhat cartoonish, but you in essence have three tools to engage a country to change its behavior. You have diplomatic um, uh, efforts. And I just ask, do any of your listeners think that a diplomatic demarche will cut Iran's relations with Lebanese Hezbollah? All right. Now we have military action. And again, I ask your listeners, is anyone in favor of another war in Southwest Asia? So you're down to diplomatic isolation and economic pressures. But economic sanctions are like uh, uh, money problems in a bad marriage. It's the scotch bottles, lipstick on the collar, and the gambling chips that cause the um, marriage to fall We're apart. We're speaking speculatively. Speculatively, of course. Of course okay, <laughs> um, but it's but not paying the rent is what causes it. Just accelerates things. When when the Bush administration began sanctions in two thousand seven, it took six years for the Iranians to come to the table. And that was just to see what deal might be available, not not to accept any deal. So sanctions are inherently uh, something which gradually changes intent. One comment. Iran is different, however, from the past. It's facing an unprecedented and simultaneous series of, 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 of environmental, uh, political, demographic, uh, social challenges for which it has no policy or a response, and it doesn't have the ability to buy its way out of, out of its problems. So there are those who believe sanctions, pressures now can work faster. Um, that's, a, that's not a, what we used to say in my old business and intelligence question. That's a crystal ball question. Sure. So let's, let's also talk about another tool in the tool box that has occasionally been used with Iran, sometimes uh, and sometimes kind of famously not used, which is, which is not just diplomacy, but public diplomacy. And support from leading American figures, the president, members of Congress, others, to support these uh, the forces in Iran that are pushing for democracy or openness or reform. What kind of impact can Western voices, whether they're American, European, or 
uh, let's say, more reform-minded folks in the Middle East, what kind of impact can those voices have on the things that are actually happening inside Iran? Hugely important question. And frankly, this has been debated in every one of the administrations that I've worked with on Iran. Um, uh, If you come out in favor of uh, the demonstrators, are you tying them to the United States and giving them another problem in the country? If you don't come up with public support, are you abandoning them? This, This dialogue goes on in every administration. I, I think it's important to, to, to recognize that we have limited agency from 8,000 miles away and that a public statement from the United States is not going to dramatically shift things. It may make some people feel better here and there, but it's not going to cause the IRGC to change its position. At the same time, on public voices, there's a different way to look at this. We are extremely partisan on Iran right now. This is an extraordinarily bad thing. I sometimes feel that the supporters of the um, JCPOA um, uh, are unable to say anything significantly critical of Iran. But likewise, that the, the opponents of JCPOA won't recognize the very valid diplomacy and tremendously important science that went into that deal. So because we're, we're so partisan, Iran sees this and knows that this is a wedge it can drive into our decision-making. The one thing I would request on Iran policy where I where I king, would be a bipartisan approach to the Iranian issue and, frankly, fewer voices because this cacophony only encourages the Iranians not to become more reasonable. Or if I I might actually disagree with you on that and say – it's not that we need fewer voices, but the the plethora of voices that we have on Iran, and there are these deep disagreements, should have a common ground to all of them of trying to promote American values and American interests around the world and recognizing that and finding common ground with each other, even while disagreeing on policy outcomes. What better example could we provide that kind of vigorous plurality to a country like Iran where, at least in our view, and I think it's true, there is no real pluralism there's just the there's a control is 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 on, in an iron fist with just a few folks uh, and they and pe- the real people can't change their government if they want to i think we have to demonstrate to them that you can actually have disagreements and pluralism in a respectful way in a way that's constructive i agree completely uh, okay let's talk about uh, norm theology a little bit uh, one of one of the lenses that Wash, you know, folks in Washington look at uh, Iran, the rest of the Middle East is through uh, kind of the Shia-Sunni divide. And we see uh, Iran as the champion of um, Shiism. It has allies in Iraq, in Lebanon, and elsewhere. And we, and we kind of see that the divide between Shia and Sunni Islam as something that affects things on the ground. On the other hand, you occasionally hear that uh, Iran, which is a revolutionary government, is occasionally supportive of radical Sunni elements also. So what's the, what's the best way for us in Washington, either as policymakers or, or observers, to think about that theological divide that Iran is kind of at the epicenter of? Okay, well, just to, just to throw out a few, few comments. First, again, going back to Iran's constitution, um, they talk about supporting oppressed Muslims, Shia and Sunni. Uh, there's no difference. Second, Iran supports a variety of Shia and Sunni sects in the region uh, and groups ranging from Hamas, the Palestine Islamic Jihad, elements of the Taliban. Uh, the um, uh, Houthi uh, Shia sect is very different from the uh, Shia sects you see in Iraq. So Iran is is really a is sectarian in this regard. The sectarian issue, I think, is sometimes overplayed. Um, uh, there, you, you don't really have Shia in places like Kuwait, Bahrain, um, uh, Saudi Arabia. 
Arabia protesting that they want a government like Iran. There are very few yeah. places that say they want a government like Iran in the world, and it's usually a places in, in, in broken states. So sectarianism is, is something that Iran claims. It likes to claim to see itself as the representative of all the Shia, the world, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, it, it doesn't have that sort of, um, of significant influence across the region as a whole. All right, let's uh, let's talk about Henry Kissinger again. You you brought him up earlier. Is a, a famous quote that says uh, Iran has to decide whether it is a cause or a country. What is what is your reaction to that kind of fundamental aphorism from uh, yes. perhaps our greatest Secretary of State? Well, the Secretary is is quite wise, but I would uh, I would put a twist on it. I would offer a different a different a different perspective. I think we have to decide whether it's a cause or a country. And this goes back to the partisan nature of this issue. If you believe Iran is a country, then frankly, you must – if you believe Iran is a country, then you can deal with it through the foreign ministry, deal with the president, deal with it in very normal ways, and you can achieve uh, agreement. If you believe it is a, a cause, then you must confront it and push back. If you think you can do both, then you're trying to pull a rabbit out of a hat with no bottom. It has not worked out yet. And anyone who thinks you can deal with something both, both and be successful should explain how well they think we've done in our policy against Lebanese Hezbollah for all of these years. So because we have wavered between cause and country in every administration on our side, whereas the supreme leader and many of the senior most leaders of Iran have never changed since 1989 and some before that, they know they can outlast us with just a few years. And indeed, there are many who believe that the um, um, uh, Iran believes that they're just going to outlast Donald Trump and hope for a democratic uh, government uh, administration, which would just go back to treating it as a as a country. Well, so uh, they probably will outlast this president, whether he has another year or another five years. Uh, but will they outlast liberal democracy from the West? Is there is there kind of a built-in clock on a revolutionary government like Iran's that is gonna, that we could see really uh, becoming weak and unstable in the next generation or so? And uh, in other words, a, a lot of folks pointed to the Soviet Union, which lasted about 70 years, as saying that's kind of the clock for an authoritarian government that isn't really responsive to the needs of its people. There's a time limit on what on, on how long a government like that can last. Are you? Do you, is your gut that we're, we're seeing that in Iran or we will see that in Iran? No question. If you look in Iran right now, again, going back to is it a cause or is it a country, increasing in Iran, it's more of a country and less of a cause for the people, although it's a significant cause and less of a country for the supreme leader. If you look outside of Iran, it's more of a cause and less of a country. You have many militias who believe in working with the Quds Force. There are very few political entities in the region who stand up and say, I want to wake up in the morning and live as well and have the same government as in Iran. Every um, government tends to have about – every revolution tends to have about three or four generations. As I say, I believe we're facing a, a transition from the elderly leadership in Iran, much as we're facing a transition from similar elderly leadership throughout the rest of the Middle East. But the new generation, we, we just should be careful. It's not going to be less assertive. It's not going to be less interested in pushing its ideals. It just might be more engaging. So what's the exit – let's call this the exit question. What's the, what's the likeliest – alternative political system to the Islamic Republic in Iran, whether it's now or in 20 years or so? Uh, and what's the, you know, what's that first new post-revolutionary government going to look like? 
I couldn't predict that, and I, I I shouldn't go in that direction. That that's a that's a, in my old world we were very we were very careful about predicting the future. I will choose a lottery number uh, if I'm given a choice of of, of getting one thing right first, and uh, that one I I would just hope it is something that is more representative of a younger and more educated and more uh, globalized Iranian people. They deserve this. Let me uh, fair enough, and uh, and buying a lottery ticket might be might uh, be more personally uh, uh, economically valuable anyway but uh what's the then what's your uh what's your instinct for the way to the u.s and the west should be engaging around should we be reaching out to those young voices now through other means while we may be pursuing sanctions or other public diplomacy efforts how do we reach out to those younger iranians can it can that be a constructive conversation that happens absolutely we can best um help iran go through the transition which its people its own people seek uh by just being our and showing them that our values, our, our way of life is something attractive. Now, we've got to clean up some of our act in Washington uh, these days ourselves, to be frank. But Absolutely. at the same time, you, if you lifted the gates on Iran, there would be a lot more Iranians running to the United States than r- Americans running to Iran. And that's not entirely for economic reasons. So just by being ourselves and allowing as many Iranians as possible to see our, uh, our way of life, I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good way of showing that there are alternatives for them. I also believe that whereas diplomacy is something we've got to be careful about with Iran, because diplomacy means negotiations, which means concessions. And as I say, when it comes to concessions, we're not willing to give up much of New Hampshire to Tehran, but we are willing to talk about the Iranians sharing a region that we don't actually have to live in. Okay, We get a choice. Most of the people in the region don't. But we should have channels of communications with the Iranians so we can offer them an exit ramp when they choose to conduct such, uh, such a change in their policy so they can see that there are alternatives, and we should represent. We should help them achieve their interests on, as I say, seismology, refugees, environmental issues, et cetera, et cetera. Norm, thanks for coming in and sharing your insights with our Fault Lines audience. I think this was a terrific show, and it's a wrap. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll be back in two weeks.